Jesus gets angry, not with the children, but with the disciples. In God's eyes, the characteristic of greatness is found in giving. We think we know what we want. And God knows what we want. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Today, uh, each Sunday, we are looking at the way of Jesus and the way that Jesus is on the way, where he's going, what he's doing, what he's saying, how he is calling us into this way, into this upside down kingdom. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, If you have a Bible or if you want to turn in your phone to Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in Mark 9 and Mark 10 today. And what I want us to do is just look at this upside down kingdom of Jesus. Several years ago, back in the day before GPS was on your phone, um, back in the day when we could do road trips without the fear of catching germs, uh, we used to do a lot of different kinds of road trips. And my favorite one was uh, one Saturday, we just said, hey, whoever wants to show up at Campus House at 9 a.m. and we're gonna go on a road trip. So we split groups, people up into groups of four or five and each group had a driver. You kind of need that for a road trip. And a driver and then they, they picked their soundtrack because you have to have that for a road trip, right? Driver, soundtrack, and then um, each group uh, was told, you need to be back at 5 p.m. We're going to send you in one of four directions, and we're going to give each group a quarter. And here's the deal. When you get to a town or get to an intersection or any sort of T in the road, uh, you need to flip the coin, and that will tell you whether to turn right or left. And you're just going to follow that and see where the, the randomness of awesomeness um, on this road trip takes you. And then we'll get back together at 5 p.m. in the evening. And oh, yeah, each group had a Polaroid camera as well because they need to document their trip, right? They would get back at 5 p.m. And when they gathered back together, then we got to share stories and we got to share about their conversations and who they met and what was given to them weird stuff, and um, uh, just uh, how that eight hours in a car with some random people on a random road trip with a random turn right or left, um, what that did uh, in them and in their group, and it was big fun. Um, Sometimes when you read through the Gospels, you get a sense that they are just on this random road trip, that Jesus has a coin and someone says, who's, and he says, you know, whose face is on that coin? And um, that's a different pair, that's a different story of the Gospels, but he has a coin and he just is flipping it. And it's like, okay, Sea of Galilee or Capernaum today? Flip the coin. 
And that's the way it feels sometimes because it feels more random that Jesus and the disciples are zigzagging their way. They're up and down Israel and, and back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And they're hiking up this mountain and they're jumping in that boat and they're taking this detour and they're meeting this person. And we get these snapshots along the way, you know? We get this, this sermon or this massive picnic or this healing or this storm or this interruption. And it's not so linear. And I think it frustrated the disciples even at times. It's like, what are we even doing here? You know? They were not comfortable sometimes with the pace or with the seeming randomness of where Jesus was going. And especially when he went into areas where they didn't want to go. And they were continually missing the point at what Jesus was up to. See, their vision of Messiah and the coming kingdom of God was much different than what Jesus seemed to be about, and it was very, very confusing. And so today I just want to look at four quick snapshots from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus does, in fact, reveal the destination. But he also reveals how the destination actually frames each step of the journey. Jesus is on the way to the cross. And Mark is laying all of these Polaroids together to give us a fuller picture of this upside down kingdom of God, okay? So, you ready? Mark chapter nine? Okay, you can look at the screen if you want. We're gonna jump back and forth, just we're gonna toggle today. We're gonna toggle. Mark nine, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus is on the way. It says, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Have, have you ever been in a conversation where you're just pouring your heart out in this really vulnerable way and the person you're talking to um, just is, is missing it? They respond in a way that is completely antithetical to what you were saying. Has anybody ever experienced this before? Okay, good, good. Uh, not good, but I'm glad that you can relate. You know, you say something like, um, I, I, don't know, well, I don't know what to do. This is just tearing me up inside. I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't even think about anything else. I, I am at my wit's end here. And I just needed somebody to talk about. And your friend says something like, uh, so, Chipotle, you know? This is the second of three times in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. And he, he pours out his heart and he talks about how he has to suffer. And their response is one of ignorance and fear and massively missing the point. He's trying to, trying to describe this fuller picture that Isaiah predicted of a suffering servant. 
trying to prepare his disciples for the reality that he is going to suffer and die and be raised again in order to rescue humanity. And each of the three times, the response from the disciples is one of ambition and status and power and reputation. So Jesus says, guys, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then he says, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? And they didn't want to answer him. And the reason they didn't want to answer him is because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. I'm the greatest disciple who ever lived. You don't even know what you're talking about. I'm the best. That was the argument that they were having in the context of Jesus pouring out his heart about his death. Same thing in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 32. For the third time Jesus describes what's going to happen, and for the third time they exhibit the exact opposite of Jesus' words. 10.32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem, and with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed, other than the twelve, The rest of the group, they were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him with more detail this time. He says, we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and three days later he will rise. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him and they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't even know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink of the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Jesus said to him, actually, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And when the 10, the rest of the disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So here we go, Jesus is very clear, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm gonna be mocked, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be turned over to the Jewish authorities, and I'm going to die. Jesus is talking about all of that is happening in Jerusalem. All these guys here is Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the centerpiece of Israel, the place where Messiah will announce his kingdom, the place where where finally the Romans will be defeated. That's what they're thinking. We're talking, you know what this means for us, Power and prestige from fishing boats to throne room. It's a Cinderella story, you know? And they had the audacity to ask for the best seats when Jesus sets up his throne. We can rule together. Jesus had been talking about self-sacrifice. All they heard was self-promotion. So they came to Jesus. Teacher, do for us whatever 
we ask. That's like a kid going to the parents and saying, um, uh, I'm going to ask you something. Do you promise to say yes? <laughs> I need a blank check here, right? Jesus', Jesus question back to them is probing their motivation. Is this about God's kingdom or is this about your kingdom? He says, what do you want me to do for you? They say, give us the best seats, the positions of authority and power. Not only were they being self-promoting, but they were being insensitive to Jesus who had just poured out his heart, right? And it was a huge slam to the other disciples. They were trying, James and John, to circumvent. They're trying to backdoor, trying to bribe Jesus for the best positions of authority. And the other disciples were just ticked, mostly because they wanted the same thing. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. One of the commentaries I read said, even in his refusals of our request, God reveals his humility and grace for how wretched we should be if God granted every request for which we foolishly pray. Hmm. We think we know what we want, and God knows what we need. So Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. He says, can you drink this cup? Yeah, totally. The reality is that they can't drink the cup fully because the fullness of Jesus' cup is the cup of atonement for sin, the ransom of humanity. Only Jesus can do that. But James and John will drink the cup of persecution and suffering. They will, in fact, deal with the consequences of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So back to these, these two snapshots toggling between Mark 9 and Mark 10. Both times, Jesus is preparing them for what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And both times, they miss it completely and respond antithetically. And both times, there are these teachable moments that Jesus uses then to paint this picture of the upside-down kingdom of God. So go back to Mark 9, 33. When he was in the house, he asked, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. So sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Mark 10, verse 42. Jesus called them together for the third time, and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Each time Jesus gathers them, each time he brings them together in the midst of their separation, and he he sits down with them with authority and grace, and he reframes what greatness is, what leadership is, what success is. See, the world's idea of greatness and success in leadership is about power and control and dominance and performance and position and influence and metrics 
be first, exercise authority, step on others to make it to the top? Am I not wrong? How do you even answer that? Do you say yes? Does that mean you are wrong or no? (laughs) So that was a rhetorical question when I said, am I not wrong? Because I really do think I'm right. Never mind. So lunch line at church camp, junior high camp. I used to do this junior high camp. And inevitably, they would ring the bell for lunch. Anybody ever do church camp, by the way? Okay, a few of you. Anybody do any camp? Okay. No camp people there. We used to have these camps, and one was a junior high camp, and uh, squirrely kids, really squirrely. And there were some in the week, about 100 kids. Some of them were just mean and bullies and always wanted their way, you know? I mean, junior high kids. They just need to skip junior high. They need to ship them off. Sorry. Anyway, Jesus did some amazing things. Um, but uh, every lunch period, every meal, really, they would ring a bell, and these bullies would just shoot to the front to get the best, the best seats in line, right? They get, get the food first. And so we did the switcheroo. We came out, and we read this verse with a megaphone. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And all of the kids, they really didn't care. The scrawny kids in the back were going... And we paraded them in front of the bullies to the front of the line. And it was beautiful. So the next meal, all the bullies get to the back of the line. And we did nothing. (laughs) Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. He's saying when our eyes are fixed on ourselves, on our own power, our own getting ahead, it kills love. Because love is always focused on others. In God's eyes, the characteristic of greatness is found in giving. It's a posture of a servant that gets closest to God's heart. Service is the primary way believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. So Jesus says, not so with you, not like the world. Whoever wants to be great must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Peter, one of the disciples sitting here listening to this, in his letter to the church, he said, care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Take care of those that God has put in your watch. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it. What a cool picture of leadership. No matter what strata of society that you are heading into, you are being prepared to be a leader. And Jesus said, first of all, become a follower. Worry more about your follower or followership of Jesus, which will then inform a different way to lead. Because the way Jesus leads is not what you get out of it, 
but compassionately caring and coming under and serving. True leadership is servant leadership. His kingdom is about caring for the least of these, serving in his name instead of trying to make a name for ourselves. The world is about taking power and control, and God's people, we have to be diametrically different to that. Keller said, if at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to win influence in society or in church is through service rather than power and control, especially in the cultural moment that we are in, especially in an election year, especially in the midst of polarization, in the, especially in the midst of all of the unknowns, especially in now. What is the way of Jesus? It is kneeling with a basin, washing his disciples' feet. It is embracing the least of these, the lepers, the outcast. It is standing up to the oppressive leaders. It is being stretched on a cross. It is walking out of the tomb. It is children using him for a jungle gym, which is the last passage I wanna look at. Sandwiched in between these two teachable moments are two more snapshots that demonstrate the posture and the priority of Jesus. Mark chapter nine, flip back one more time to verse 35. says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then to demonstrate that, he took a little child whom he placed among them. Boom. And then taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Toggle back to chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing their little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You see, in Greek culture, in Jewish culture, in every culture, at this point, children were the bottom of every chain. They were the least of these. The way that Jesus treated children was unique only to Jesus. No one else was doing that. But the disciples didn't get it. They rebuked the children. They were angry with the children. They were angry at the worthless children taking up their space and time with Jesus, interfering with their ministry, these pesky kids who were an intrusion to our already busy schedule. I don't know where our schedule's going because it's very random. I don't know day to day. But they are invading our space. Jesus gets angry, not with the children, but with the disciples. 
He's angry that they are more concerned with their position and with their entitlement than actually loving and receiving the least of these. What do we get angry about? Honestly. Do we get more angry when the TA didn't curve the test or with our roommate or spouse or whoever is supposed to do the dishes or when someone cuts us off in traffic? Usually, if I'm honest, the stuff I get angry about is when I don't get my way. Is that true of anyone except me? Okay. All right, two of you. Good, good. Good. Yeah, what does God get angry about? Very different from what I get angry about, right? God, in his perfection, gets angry. And he gets angry when the helpless and the oppressed are mistreated and abused and neglected and murdered and forgotten. So things like child slavery and abortion and sex trafficking should make us angry. And mistreatment of immigrants should make us angry. And racism and bigotry and poverty should make us angry. The disciples were indignant, but their anger was self-centered. They were indignant with kids who are getting in the way of their importance. The disciples were indignant with James and John who were trying to grab the best seats. Jesus was indignant also, but his anger was kingdom-focused. It was rooted and expressed in compassion and defense of the helpless and the powerless and the vulnerable. Matthew 25 is this parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus said, what you do for the least of these, you've done for me, but what you withheld, what you didn't do for the least of these, you haven't done it for me. Jesus takes a kid in his arms. He says, here's an example of the insignificant ones that you are to receive and welcome. Jesus isn't saying, go become like children. He's saying, become like Jesus who embraces them. He says, let the children come. Don't hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to these. In fact, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he took the child in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus becomes a jungle gem. Jesus said children are heirs to the kingdom, not because of their virtues, but because of what they lack. It's referring to their helplessness. He's talking about babies. Small, powerless, very tired, unsophisticated, no clout, their, their LinkedIn status, really weak, not very cool. A baby has nothing to bring. They are totally dependent. It's, look at him, he can't even use silverware. Jesus is saying that unless you are completely dependent on him, you won't enter the kingdom. It's understanding our need for grace. Unless 
we receive the kingdom like that? Dependent? We miss it. This is the upside down kingdom. Because in the natural order of the world, the older and more mature you get, the more independence you get from your parents, right? Please say yes, because on behalf of your parents, they, they don't want you around when you're 50. I mean, they want you around, of course, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. Whew. Spiritually, though, the more mature we get, the more dependent on God we become. Did you hear that? With your folks, the older you get, the more mature you get, the more independent. We bless that. But spiritually speaking, the more mature you become, the deeper you grow in your relationship with Christ, the more dependent on him you become. Frederick Buechner, novelist, pastor, brilliant. He wrote, we are children perhaps at the very moment when we know that it is as children that God loves us. Not because we have deserved his love and not in spite of our undeserving, not because we try and not because we recognize the futility of our trying, but simply because he has chosen to love us. We are children because he is our father in all our efforts, fruitful and fruitless, to do good, to speak truth, to understand are the efforts of children who for all their precocity, their advanced maturity or development are still children in that before we loved him, he loved us as children through Jesus. Jesus blessed them. I just imagine this really cool scene where kids are just climbing all over Jesus and laughing, and Jesus is, is blessing them. And such a contrast to the, the Jewish leaders who let their intellect and their education and their rules stand in the way of this childlike trust. And the contrast between these children and the disciples who were blinded by their own self-centeredness. Jesus' power on display as a jungle gym. How cool is that? 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. But it's a different kind of power it's not the kind of power that people hoard, but it's the kind that gives itself away. It's the kind of power that brings healing to the broken, that responds to the physical and the spiritual and emotional needs around us. It's the kind of power we sing that breaks the chain. The other side of control and power is in the words of Tony Campolo, this awesome beauty of weakness and love the weakness of love, that we experience God's love and his power. We, he, his love saves us and heals us. His love makes us new. But on the other hand, the power, his power destroys in us everything that is corrupt and unclean. He doesn't force his way into our lives. He presents himself to us in the awesome splendor 
of his weakness on the cross. So that's why Paul says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others more valuable than yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to hang on to, something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Ephesians 5, Paul says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to end with this quote from Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy. He says, a normal kingdom would be propped up by people with authority and power. A normal kingdom celebrates strength, but Jesus' kingdom doesn't. Instead, he celebrates weakness. <laughs>